Well, if you've got a Bible to hand, please do turn to the book of Genesis. We're having two readings just now, and then we'll have a, a reading later in the service. We're going to read briefly from Genesis 12, and then we're going to read Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to skip over to Genesis chapter 15. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then over to Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. We're continuing in our series looking at at the book of Exodus. We started last week, uh, and we're going to 
continue with the rest of chapter 1 of Exodus 1. But we're going to read the whole chapter. But we're going to be focusing from verses 8 to 22. Exodus chapter 1, reading from verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. As you do, let me pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now as we look at it, you would speak to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how can God bring goodness out of sadness, horror, pain, or sickness? So that's the question that many of us will understandably ask when we are faced with sorrow in our lives. Maybe we might 
lose our job unfairly. Maybe a loved one is diagnosed with cancer or there's a tragic accident. We wonder, even if we've trusted God all our lives, how could anything good flow from this? This thing that is so tragic. I think we've all, to a greater or lesser extent, been touched by sorrow in our lives. We've all read and heard something of that sorrow and pain in others. How could anything good come come from such things? How could God work through it? Maybe that's something that you're asking yourself this morning. And these thoughts, I think, can be particularly acute when the pain and sorrow comes to us because of our faith. Where we've been on the receiving end of unkindness, oppression. I suppose many of us have had little of that in the past. Most of us will have grown up knowing that the worst we might get was to be called a Bible basher at school. But for many of us, if not all, the pain, the, the sorrow, the loss of friends, the rejection by family members because of our faith could well be on the horizon you may well be able to imagine such a scenario playing out. Maybe you could imagine a conversation that might happen and someone might suddenly say, well, I I want nothing to do with you, if that's what you think. In the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of the sorrows of life, we can wonder, what is God doing? How is he working Well, as we turn to the Bible for answers, the interesting thing that I think strikes me, maybe it strikes you as well, is that we find that that God often works amidst times of pain and sorrow. How God is often at work in the midst of horrific events. Of course, we should be careful to decipher providence in our own lives, But equally, we must remember that God works in often surprising ways and can and often does work through events that bring us great sorrow and pain. At such times, we need reminding in the midst of our difficulties and our sorrows that God remains faithful. He remains faithful to his promises even in the darkest hours of life. And as we look to the book of Exodus, we have such a situation portrayed for us in this chapter. Last week, we looked at the opening verses of Exodus, and we see there that we are continuing in the narrative that finished at the end of the book of Genesis. We're reminded of all these people who who went down to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, we see in verse 7 that the people grow fruitful and increased greatly. What was a a group of, of 70 people is now becoming a nation. And although as we read verse 7, we might just assume that this is just um, a matter of ordinary population growth, a byproduct of time and normal human relations, we must remember that the Bible is a covenant book that is underpinned by and follows the flow of God's covenant dealings with his people. 
And what God promises in his covenant, he keeps. In Genesis 12, earlier on, we heard that the Lord would make of Abram a great nation. And that's what we see in verse 7. God is slowly and very surely keeping his promises. This is the God that is portrayed for us in the Bible. God keeps his covenant promises. But as we come to verse 8 and following, I wonder if you notice that the picture changes. Instead of just a people living in a land and growing in number, we see suffering and we see the threat of death. And the question we must ask is whether amidst this suffering, is God still keeping his covenant promise? Does all this suffering and pain negate God's promises? Well, as we'll hopefully see over the next few minutes, the answer is a resounding yes, that God does keep his covenant promises. God keeps his covenant promises in the midst of opposition to his people. And as we come to our passage, the first thing we see is that God keeps covenant by prospering his people in slavery. God keeps covenant by prospering his people in slavery. Verses 8 to 14. The king is dead, long live the king. Well, those words spoken at the end of one monarch's reign and at the start of another's remind us, don't they, of the continuity of monarchy. Now, whether you're a Republican or not, if you prefer us to get rid of the monarchy, that phrase reminds us, though, doesn't it? One monarch goes, one monarch comes. There's continuity. But also, the phrase reminds us that monarchs change. They do not last forever. Some reign very briefly, like the uncle of our current queen. Others reign a bit longer, like the queen's grandfather. And then some reign forever, it seems, like our queen. They seem to just go on forever, never seeming to look like they're going to stop. Sadly, that will happen. There is always change. Monarchs come and they go. And that's what we see in verse 8. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now that's not necessarily the next king after the one that Joseph had dealings with. And it doesn't mean necessarily that this king didn't know anything about Joseph. I think what we should take from this is that this new king, maybe he was a king who'd conquered Egypt, maybe it was a change in dynasty, we don't know, was one to whom Joseph meant nothing. He was totally and utterly uninterested in Joseph and Joseph's legacy and all his service to Egypt. What we have then is it's a real break from the past in verse 8. This new king who has arisen, he's not interested in good relations with these people. Instead, he fears them, or at least he wants to stir up fear, verses 9 to 10. The king highlights, doesn't he, their number, their strength, and the potential threat that they could be to the nation. So what's the solution to this project fear? Is it that these, be, it's that these people be put to hard work? Verse 11, we see that they are afflicted with heavy burdens. They become the labor force to build these great cities of Pithom and Ramses. And you might think, wouldn't you? Well, that's the problem solved, isn't it? I don't imagine they lived in a world where health and safety were top priorities in the board of works for the Nile Delta. 
No doubt these works would have been unsafe. They'd have been dangerous. People would have died. Large bricks falling on top of people, killing them, and nobody would have bothered. These people were afflicted and worked hard. They would no doubt have had long-term impact on their health. You would think that this would then have a detrimental effect on the population numbers, wouldn't you? At the very least, it might have slowed the growth, maybe. Maybe even reduced it to a more manageable size from the Egyptians' point of view. But that's not what happens, is it? We see this in verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. What the king of Egypt has tried to do has had the exact opposite effect. Instead of dealing with their numbers, instead of reducing their size and strength, the people of Israel, God's covenant people, are growing in direct response to the oppression they're experiencing. God is evidently keeping his promises, isn't he? He said he would make them a great nation. He promised that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that is what they are on their way to being. Amidst forced labor by a fearful state who are treating them terribly, they are growing more and more. God is keeping his covenant promise. And as we look around the world today, we see, we see a similar growth in the church. I wonder, do you ever think, does persecution stop the growth of the church? Does persecution stop the growth of God's people? If it did, we would never pray for the persecuted church because the persecuted church wouldn't exist because they'd be persecuted out of existence. But we do pray for the persecuted church. That sort of implies, doesn't it, that there is a church and it's growing. Now, sometimes persecution and oppression has destroyed the church in places, but God's people have never been wiped out. But equally often, in the face of state oppression, the church has grown, not just by population growth of existing Christians, but by wonderful conversion growth, where Christians have bravely told those around them about Jesus, where they have proclaimed the gospel. They made it clear who Jesus is. They've proclaimed his death and his resurrection. And the best example, I think, would be the church in China. If you're old enough to remember 1951, I can say I'm not. In 1951, Christian missionaries were expelled from China. Probably didn't look a great situation. Probably looked a bit gloomy. And China has been, since I think the late 40s, a communist country and been, broadly speaking, anti-Christianity, anti-the gospel, unless it complied in some way. And that might be becoming worse these days. But contrary to what we might expect, China is on course to becoming, according to Google, the largest Christian nation in the world by 2030. It's quite staggering, isn't it? I mean, it's a big country, China. It's so hard to get your head around all the numbers. It's remarkable, isn't it? That country that is not in any way, shape, or form friendly to the gospel will become the most populous Christian nation in the world in less than 15 years. That's remarkable, isn't it? The church is growing around the world today. God is still keeping his covenant promises. He is still building for himself a people that will be beyond numbering. So whatever our situations may be, whatever sorrows or pains we know this day, we can take heart, can't we? That in the midst of our world, where there is much pain and sorrow, God is keeping his covenant 
promises. God is still growing his people. But back in Exodus chapter 1, does this continued growth grant the people of Israel any respite? Do they do suddenly, oh, that's all okay. Life will be easy now. Well, no, in fact, it doesn't. We read in verse 12 that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They don't think that maybe their initial policy was unwise. They don't think it might be better to, you know, kiss and make up, so to speak, to try and keep the people of Israel sweet, to treat them well, as we might say. And we see what they do next in verse 13. They treat them abominably. They deal with them ruthlessly. They make their lives bitter with hard service. They are made to work as slaves. Again, it's really grim. I don't think any of us could really understand what this must have been like. It would have been horrific, horrible. But God is keeping his covenant promises amidst their hardship. No doubt they would have kept growing in response to this hardship. But also, this is what God had said would happen. I wonder if you noticed in Genesis 15, verse 13, that the Lord told Abram that the people would be servants in a land not their own and would be afflicted for 400 years. That's what God said would happen. And it has happened. Equally for us as Christian people today, the Lord doesn't promise us an easy life. If you're coming here this morning interested in being a Christian, I'd like to tell you, being a Christian is not easy. There is no promise of good lives now for the Christian. Life for Christian people is full of pain and sorrow and hardship. It's a life that is not easy, and being a Christian will, to a greater or lesser extent, always bring with it a degree of opposition, maybe mocking, to outright state oppression in some lands. But we know all this, don't we? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. We should not be surprised when such things happen. In fact, we can take confidence, can't we? That because we know that they are going to happen, and when they do occur, that God's word is being fulfilled. God's word is being made to be more sufficient than we maybe thought before. It is seen to be more trustworthy. So amidst opposition, amidst pain and strife, we can be sure that the Lord keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant with his people. He has not changed. He is still the covenant-keeping God of Exodus chapter 1. He keeps his promises to his people today. Well, what next then for the ruler of Egypt? Obviously, putting the people into slavery has not worked. They are not decreasing in number, so a more radical approach has to be taken. And that is what we see in verses 15 to 21, where we see that God keeps covenant by protecting his people from death. In verse 15, we again see the king of Egypt taking action. Now, we, of course, should note that this is not probably the king of Egypt mentioned in verse 8. This is probably a, a later king who, on seeing the state of the situation, thinks something more needs to be done. The, the previous policy has not reaped the fruits that it was hoped for. Instead of working them even harder, the king now chooses a more direct approach to population reduction. And we see this in verses 15 to 16. The king approaches these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and asks them to take a fairly drastic action. He wants them to kill any male child 
that they help to give birth to. Now we are, um, you may know Rachel, my wife, as we're expecting at the moment, and it's a horrific thing to think of this. Can you imagine the horror and evil of the request? Aside from the fact that these male children are going to be murdered, the ones that are being tasked with this job are those who are meant to bring life, who are meant to help. It's horrific, isn't it? Could you imagine it? At Fourth Valley Hospital, child is born, oh, it's a male. Oh, sorry, it's dead. It's horrific. The very healthcare professionals that are supposed to help are being tasked with ending life. It's grotesque. Not only that, though, but the king is asking these women to do it to their own people. He's asking them to collaborate. That's a filthy word, isn't it? Collaborate with this oppressive regime. They are commanded to help the state kill their own. And the reason, of course, that they are to kill the boys is that if you kill the boys you will very quickly have a reduced population. It might also make the women available to the Egyptians so that the Egyptians might increase their population. I wonder how you'd react if you're one of those midwives being commanded to act like this by the king. The king would probably, I imagine, have been impressive. And considering what he's asked them to do, he's pretty ruthless too. I think there's sort of like an implication there. If you don't do as you're told, you will be killed. He would have thought nothing, no doubt, of killing these midwives if they didn't do as they were told. Which makes it, I think, all the more remarkable how these women react. We see their reaction in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women under pressure to kill recognize who is to be most feared. And I suppose that word in English can confuse us to its meaning and can make us think that God is vicious and vindictive. For that's normally how we associate the word fear, don't we? We fear the enemy. We fear the dark. We fear we might lose our jobs. For most of us, fear is a, it's a purely negative word. The worry about a bad outcome. But in the Bible, fear has a broader meaning. It can have a negative connotation, but it also has this idea of standing in awe of someone, of reverencing someone. So for these women to fear God is for them to know who he is, to know that he is to be trusted, to know that he is to be honored and obeyed above all others. So therefore it makes complete sense that if they know God, if they trust in him, if they know who he is, if they fear him, as the Bible says, that they would not do as the king of Egypt has commanded them. They know who God is. He's the ruler over all, the creator of all. He's the one who keeps covenant with his people, and that is the one who has promised. I wonder if you remember in Genesis 12, verse 3, to curse all those who dishonor his people. They know who God is, So respond to him as they ought. And as we live in the world where the pressure is increasing upon us as Christians 
to turn our back on God and to obey every ideological command of our society and culture. There may come a time when Christians are called upon in their jobs, if they are employed by the state or other jobs, to do things that are clearly against what God commands. Now, of course, generally speaking, we are called to live quiet lives as Christians, non-contentious. We are not called to go looking for trouble, but trouble may find us, as it did these women. I'm sure they weren't volunteering for this assignment. The question then asks, comes to us, and asks us, how will we respond? Will we be those who follow the lead of these women? Will we be those who hear the words of Christ in Matthew 10, 28? Fear not those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, no doubt, wisdom is needed in these situations. But we need to be those who are ready. We need to know that such decisions may come our way. And we must be ready to act in line with God's commands and not the commands of others. The actions of these midwives bring us, I suppose, to maybe the most difficult part of our passage, verses 18 to 21. And as you read those verses, you might be wondering, on reading these verses, is it okay to lie in certain situations? That might be what it appears like on the surface. But a couple of things are worth noting as we look at those verses It may well, firstly, have been the case that the Hebrew women did give birth quicker. We sort of look at it and we think, oh, that can't be right, can it? We don't know. It may be that was the case. But it may also be that these women are, in some sense, being evasive. They They don't say, for example, that they are refusing to obey because of their fear of God. Yet God deals well with them. Not, I think, because they have been, maybe, evasive, but because they feared him. And they are given families, verse 21. And what is important here is that they are not commended for being evasive with the king, if that is what they were being, but they are commended for being faithful, for not killing the male sons of the people of Israel because they feared God, verse 21. That is why they are commended. And the point is that in the midst of the threat of genocide, through the refusal to murder by these faithful women, God is at work. He is keeping his covenant with his people. He is preserving them. He is saving them from destruction. And that is what the covenant Lord does. In the midst of slavery, he was protecting his people from death. Not only here, but in many times and in many ways down through history, the Lord has done such things. He has stopped his people from being destroyed. He has preserved his people. But as we say that, we also have to be clear that sometimes the Lord does not spare his people from the onslaught of their enemies. And that's what we see in our last point in verse 22. Death did come. Well, the Egyptians' plan A was to impede the growth of God's people through bad treatment and slavery. It didn't work. Plan B, 
was that the midwives were to try to kill, were to kill the male children. It didn't work either. In each case, the people multiplied and grew very strong. God was keeping his promise. He was growing them into a great nation. He was protecting them from judgment. But now we come to plan C for the Egyptians in verse 22. The Pharaoh commands all his people to take action. The Egyptian people are to turn on God's people and kill every son born to them. The Pharaoh's plan has stopped being a little secret plan with some midwives. It's gone public. And he has called all of his people, not God's people, his people, to do this. Now, we're not given really much detail about how long this, this planned genocide lasted or how widespread it was or if all the nation were as enthusiastic about this as the king wanted them to be. But it's fairly clear, I think, if you read on into Genesis, sorry, Exodus chapter 2, that this was no idle threat. This was real, and this happened. And it could be easy for us at the end of this chapter to wonder, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why can't God protect his people once more? How can he be working in the midst of this genocide? That's a real issue. In the midst of the pain in our lives, which I suppose being honest, is very small in comparison to this pain that must have been experienced by God's people then. We want to know, how is God keeping his covenant? How is he keeping his promise amidst pain and suffering? Well, let me just say two things about this final verse, verse 22, that we can pick up. Firstly, it's now very clear that the whole people of Egypt are standing against God's people. It's God's people on one side, and it's the king of Egypt's people on the other. They are called by their king to do this unspeakable act. They are all guilty as a people. And therefore, when later in the narrative of Exodus, we see the Lord's judgment fall upon the Egyptians, we can be sure that it is merited. For they stand guilty of dishonoring God's people. So God's covenant curse falls upon them, as we'll find out in the coming weeks. And it falls justly. His judgment upon Egypt is him continuing to keep his covenant. They have enslaved, they have murdered God's people, and God will not forget his covenant to his people. He will not forget them. And this is so today. Either we are a part of God's covenant people and receive his blessing, or we stand apart and opposed to God and his people and face his curse. This opposition to God and his people might not always be obvious. Maybe it's not obvious to you today, but it is real. There are only two types of community in this world. People often use the phrase community this and community that, that community and this community, but there are really only two communities in this world. There are those who are God's, and there are those who are not. There is no middle ground. There is no nice bunch of folk who are not in, but they're really nice and they like us. You're either opposed to God and his people or you're not. 
So as Christian people suffer due to the opposition of the world, we can take hope that our covenant Lord will not forget his promises. Justice will come for all those who stand against him and his people. There will be no one spared from God's covenant judgment. For God keeps his covenant promises. Secondly, as we look at this verse and the following chapter, we see that out of the darkest sorrow, the bright light of God's salvation shines brightly. For as we will see next week, it's in the midst of this genocide that we see the birth of Moses, the savior of God's people. In the midst of genocide, freedom from captivity, and the fulfillment of redemption, of covenant promise, are being set in place. God is working through genocide to bring his saviour. And for Christian people too, we have a far greater saviour than Moses. We have the one to whom Moses only points, Jesus Christ, who was himself born amidst a small genocide. We have a saviour in Christ who knew opposition, who knew the harshness, the bitterness of life. He knew opposition. He was hated by many. And he didn't save us through easiness. He didn't save us easily with no pain or sorrow. No, he saves us amidst a bloody and painful death where he bore our sin that we might not need to bear it, where he bore the covenant curse that we deserve that we might find covenant blessing by trusting in him. And that's the wonder of the Christian gospel today, that those who have opposed God, those who have in many ways opposed God's people, are called now, today, to turn, to trust, to turn from that opposition, that way of living, and to trust in God's Savior, His King, Jesus Christ, that they might not face the covenant curse that is coming, that we all deserve on our own merits. That's the call, but will we hear it? Will we trust and keep trusting God over anybody else in this life? Will we be those who, who fear God and not the king, so to speak? For God keeps his covenant promise. He works through the toughest times. He is always faithful to the promise to his people in Christ. We must, I think, therefore, in the face of the difficulties of life now, whatever those might be for each one of us, and we all have different challenges, we all face different things in life, we must trust in him. We must trust in him for salvation, and we must trust in him and obey him now, not the world. We must trust and fear the Lord, for the Lord is a covenant-keeping God, who brings salvation from darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this passage, we are horrified at the treatment of these people. It is horrific. It is inhumane. Yet we know, Heavenly Father, that in the midst of this, you are working you were building and growing your people. You were protecting them. And out of the darkest moment, 
you brought salvation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would acclimatize ourselves to the way you work. That in the midst of our sorrow, our pain, opposition that we might experience, we would be those who remember the sort of God that you are. That you are the covenant-keeping God. That you are faithful to every one of your promises. And that you work in the darkest moments of our life to bring small tastes of salvation now. And you have worked in the darkest moment in history to bring salvation for all those who trust in Christ. We pray that we would trust in Christ this morning if we have not done so before and that we would keep trusting in Christ, keep obeying him all the days of our life. We ask this in his strong name. Amen.